fear took me to a dead end. And I had to find, I had to make a new way. I had to make a new road by stepping out into it. And of course, lots of us think when we do things like this, well, we're the first, I'm really pioneering something. And then if it grows and becomes mature, you realize there's been millions and maybe hundreds of millions of people who've been down the same path already. But part of, I think part of authenticating the path is the sense that you're pioneering something, something new is happening. The joy of it is that you discover there's other people on that same path too, who maybe use different words to describe the path, but you know it when you see it. That's Gareth Higgins, storyteller, activist, creative community gatherer, a founder of festivals, and maker of peace, and now author of a profound new book called How Not to Be Afraid. Seven Ways to Live When Everything Seems Terrifying. I wanted to talk with Gareth to deep dive into his book about the story of fear and what it's trying to tell us. And as you're about to hear, our conversation time-traveled across memories, messaging, mythologies. We looked at fear in the media, how the current global crisis is, he says, a crisis of storytelling, as we explored layers of a matryoshka doll metaphor for integrating all the versions of who we are in our lives and what's really underneath all of our fears and how the stories we tell, as he says, shape how we experience everything. How do we tell stories in a way that isn't just factual but contextual and not disempowering but empowering? Born in Belfast in 1975, Gareth grew up during the Northern Ireland Troubles and now lives in Asheville, North Carolina. He received his PhD in sociology from Queen's University, Belfast, and co-taught the world's first graduate course in reconciliation studies at Trinity College, Dublin. He writes and speaks about the power of storytelling to shape our lives and world, about peace and justice, and about, as he says, how to take life seriously without believing your own propaganda. I felt an instant connection with him, even though we'd never met, had never spoken before. It's one of those conversations that transports you, where words feel more like gifts than language, and a friendship just feels initiated from a simple invitation. He weaves so many important threads and insights with such authenticity and humility, and his great laugh. And at the very end, even though I knew it was coming, oh, his last four words just took my breath away. Here's Gareth Higgins. Gareth, it's just great to see you. Thank you for having me. So I think a place I'd love to start is a kind of situating ourselves. Um, We have all been living through a type of disorientation. And I guess I want to start by asking you the question, where are you? Well, there's a number of levels to answer that. One is I'm sitting at my desk uh, in uh, just outside Belfast in the north of Ireland. And out the window in front of my desk, I can see Belfast Lock, which is the view that I had throughout my childhood. 
I've come back to the town that I grew up in on a sort of a gap year, semi-sabbatical with my husband. And um, uh, so I'm living about five minutes walk from the house that I lived in from the age of five. So that's one of the where's that I am. Um, and it's, it's good to be back in the place that I'm from. Hmm. But another place where I am is uh, I am in the hearts of my friends and the people who know me best, and they are in my heart. Uh, I've sometimes wondered over this period what my life would be like without Zoom. And I know that throughout most of human history, people didn't know a lot of people outside their village. Right. And I've been fortunate, blessed, or I've made choices, maybe it's all three of those things, to know a lot of people. Um, and over the last more than a decade in the U.S. is where most of my friends are. And my heart feels like it's with them, too. And uh, then there's this other piece where, uh, where I feel I am, which is somewhere between my mind and my heart. Now, I don't know where when we say heart and we really mean soul or spirit, when we say it, I don't know where that is. I, you know, I had a wise friend who, who thought that we were human beings, our bodies inside souls rather than mm -hmm. souls inside bodies. I don't know. I, I know that um, where I am in my deepest self is in a place that's uh, being invited to learn about love and to slow down wherever, wherever the place where you slow down is wherever the place where you learn patience is that's the place that i don't know if i am there i am near there and i am being invited to go there there's a transporting quality to the stories that you're telling and i wondered before we dive into the book i am hearing my my printer doing one of those things that printers do from time to time where they just decide to make noises so the so printer's breathing. The printer's breathing. <laughs> you know the way it does that thing where just all of a sudden it, it'll yes. go bump, bump, yeah. bump? Um, it's exhaling. It's exhaling, yeah. <laughs> uh, well, I've been having an argument with it this afternoon, so it... <laughs> it uh, <laughs> so, yeah. So in your book, it felt to me like your relationship with fear has changed so deeply that where you began in telling about your fear that you say you were born into it is not the place that you were several chapters in or certainly by the end of the book. So I love this idea of having a relationship with fear. What was the reason for actually telling the stories in this book and putting it between two hardcovers? Um, because I was feeling terrified and I needed to do something to help myself. And that was about 10 years ago when I started to write some of the things that have ended up in this book. I didn't know that that was the reason at the time. I just wrote for myself. And um, it, it really kind of originally began life as a memoir that grew into, oh, no, this is a book about this particular thing, this particular reality or entity in the world that we call fear. And as I, as I wrote and worked out what it was that I was afraid of. I mean, literally working it out 
you know, like you work out, you know, maybe a pulled muscle, you know, or you, you know, those roller things that you roll down to kind of iron out that thing. It was like that and discovering what the fear was. And then also remembering the wisdom figures, some of whom are people that I've known, some of whom are books that I've read, movies that I've seen, experiences I've had and try and weave them together, I started to discover more about myself. And that is that the way I experience fear is that fear is a story that I tell myself about something that's been stimulated, something that's been provoked. But that story may not be factual. And if it's factual, I may not be telling it in the most helpful way. Then when other people came along and started reading the scraps that I had started to produce um, and two different people came and brought editorial support, uh, uh, Tyler McCabe. And then uh, later when I got a publishing contract with Broadleaf Books, uh, Valerie Weaver's Archer came and, and was the chief editor of the book. I began to understand more about myself and how to organize these thoughts in a way that might be helpful to others. And one of the ways it is organized is it does try to begin by giving people a sense of just how bad it got for me um, to be overwhelmed by fear, to be possessed by fear, uh, to the point of at times being not so much scared to go out, but scared to let myself be seen for sure, um, uh, scared to be myself. and. It's there as an invitation for the reader to see themselves too. That if, if in some way I can help people find a mirror, to tell them the fears they have experienced are totally natural, completely normal, fairly universal. The stories, this, the, you know, the particular plots of our fears are different, but the, the heart of them is universal. Um, that's what I want to do is help people see themselves and be reassured that they're not alone and then invite them into practices that I've learned and continue to learn over the years that have helped the self that I experience day to day become bigger than the stories of fear that I tell myself or that other people try to tell me. I love that becoming bigger because when I think about when you say you were born into fear, mm -hmm. And that the stories that you were told were not the whole story. Mm -hmm. And that there was a type of deconstruction, really, that you had to go through, a demythologizing, a kind of pulling apart the pieces of that fear story to find out who you were inside it, in spite of it, because of it. So if I asked you to say more about being born into fear, but that that wasn't the whole story. Yeah, so I think I was born into three, I'd probably call them three shadows. Um, and one was, I was born into a society that was in the midst of a civil conflict that, you know, in, in truth has been going on for 800 years. So before any of us were born, uh, and before any of the people that we know were born, um, there's been conflict on this island. Uh, over who gets a stake in the society, who gets to run the society, who belongs, and how we're going to treat each other. So I was born into that moment, 1975, 
the, the, the modern iteration of the conflict in and about Northern Ireland began in about 1968. So uh, it had been going for about seven years when I was born. And so I knew fairly early on that there was a threat of violence in the society and that this violence had affected my family directly. Both my parents and, and, and loved ones and friends had been directly affected by this and that we needed to make adjustments that I later discovered many other people don't have to, to do. Many other people don't live this way. And but of course, the society you're growing up in, you, you don't know different from that. And if you're growing up in a society with great difficulties, there can be a resilience that, that comes into being that enables you to cope with these things. I think the other side of that, the shadow of that is it can also lead to a sort of a denial about the real pain that's going on. Now, in a state of emergency, there's not a lot of time uh, to work with your wounds. Um, there's maybe not even enough time to get out of the way of an immediate threat. There's been more space in the last 25 years or so for people in this society to begin to look at the long-term impact uh, of the trauma, the violence, and the fear around that conflict. Um, and there are some you know, people who still suffer today, for sure. So that's the first shadow. The second shadow is, um, uh, I, again, I didn't know this when I was born, <laughs> but I was born into a society that dehumanizes or, or believes in, in uh, the necessity of discriminating against the LGBTQ plus community. Um, Same-sex intimacy was illegal in Northern Ireland until 1982. And, um, and as I was growing into childhood and teenage years and beyond and, and uh, coming to grips with the, the truth as I understand it now, which is that I'm a bisexual man, I didn't have language for that as a child and a teenager, other than there's something wrong with you. This is sinful. This is a mental illness. And in some circumstances, uh, you're, you're possessed by demons. That was the language that existed for me or that I was exposed to. Um, uh, that's the second shadow. And then the third shadow is one I've really only started to think about clearly in the last few weeks. And that is the shadow of a, an individualized economic system that tries to convince people that each of us as individuals or as nuclear family units are 100% responsible for meeting all of our needs by ourselves. And once you've done that, maybe there's a little bit left over to share with others. And that people who think differently about that are outliers, they're a little bit strange, but the norm is you, certainly my generation, um, your father, um, because this was still a fairly patriarchal, an unfairly patriarchal society, the man goes out, is the breadwinner, your family unit is uh, supposed to generate as much money as it can for itself. And if you're in trouble, you're on your own. And so I'm realizing now I and my generation and the generation before was born into a shadow that said, no one will help you 
Or if they do, it's a little bit embarrassing. That it's more, there's a bigger burden to to the humiliation of sharing your needs than there is to being oppressed by those needs. The shame that you're describing. Yeah, exactly. So I would say there's a shadow, and all of these things, actually, I think there's a shame shadow around the conflict in Northern Ireland because, you know, Irish people and Northern Irish people have been looked down on by some other cultures. And there's kind of this, you know, we even, we still tell jokes in which Irish people are the butt of the joke. And um, uh, and I think that's pro- problematic. We've bought into that. Now I'm I'm all I'm a fan of of. Uh, I think we should we should punch up in our humor. Like George Carlin always said, like make jokes about people who are more powerful than you are. And <laughs> and yes, I get I get the usefulness of self-deprecating humor, but let's not tell racist jokes about ourselves. <laughs> <laughs> right you know let's not make jokes that make us feel more disempowered so there's a shame piece around that there was shame about sexuality and there was uh, i'm not so sure that I, I didn't feel the shame around money that was later that i came to realize oh my goodness i live in a society where when people lock their doors at night whatever's going on inside the house is not supposed to be anybody else's business and the worst thing you can do is for people to know your problems. Or write a book about everything. Or write a book. <laughs> and so, I mean, I've kind of inverted that by writing this book. But that's Absolutely. partly because I've experienced a measure of healing. I've had a lot of wisdom figures in my life. I've done a lot of good therapy. And I've come to realize that the, um, you know, there's a line in a movie that I, I quote in the book um, that's, that's not a great movie, but it's a great line, and the line is worth the entire movie. Okay, uh, what is uh, it? Uh, the movie's called How Do You Know? Uh, James L. Brooks made it, and I like James L. Brooks. This just doesn't happen to be his greatest movie. Uh, there's a scene where Reese Witherspoon goes to see a psychiatrist, played by Tony Shalhoub, and she's really driven and antsy, and she doesn't want to stay in the therapy session, so she leaves after a couple of minutes. And then she comes back into the room and she says to him, how long have you been a psychiatrist? And he says, 20 years. She says, tell me uh, in one sentence what you've learned <laughs> in, the, in those 20 years. <laughs> uh, and, and he says something like, happiness comes from finding out what you want and learning how to ask for it. Now, you could read that as being an egotistical, selfish, greedy, I want a bigger house, or I want to rule this country, or I want to be famous. He's not talking about that kind of want. He's talking about the want that your deeper self has. And the truth is, the deeper self, all deeper selves want the same thing, and that is peace and security. And a deeper word for peace and security is love, right? Love. Um, I... I've come to the view that the the best thing anybody can do with their life is find somebody else who they can tell what they really need to. And the best thing that your conversation partner can say to you doesn't have to be, thank you, I will now meet your need. It can be enough to just validate, oh, that need is valid. I hear you. I can't meet that for you, but I certain, I'll be a cheerleader. I'll, I'll, I'll help you find someone who can help you meet that need. And I think if my generation and my parents' generation had had that modeled to them, I think it's, 
It's one of the roots of transforming violent conflict into creative conflict. And it's also part of the medicine that will heal most of what ails us on the planet. Because most of what ails us is to do with the belief that we are on our own and nobody will help us. And so if that's true, I have to build a higher fence around myself to protect my stuff from you in case you come to take it. Um, which is, you know, that's a myth. That's a story that is disproven every time you're around an interdependent community where sharing happens and people have realized you don't need that bigger fence. There's deep joy. There's a deeper level of joy that comes from sharing in interdependent community than there could ever be by just holding on to your stuff. You know what I'm thinking when you talk about um, the idea of feeling alone, being alone, being left alone, you lay out seven fears in the book. And of course, we all struggle with some form of fear. And we ought to also be thankful that we have a mechanism in our brain mm -hmm. that detects fear. And I, I, I kept getting struck by the stories that you were telling on a neurobiological level, that we're all born into fear in the sense that we have an amygdala that's already formed in the womb. Mm -hmm. And so we can both detect threat, the greatest threat of which is that I'll be left alone, that I'll be cast out. And but we also have the capacity in our brain, as you know, to mitigate that, to say, shh there's no grizzly bear in the room. You don't, you don't need the big fence. But when that gets out of whack, when we have amplified, when that fear story has been reinforced and reified, then the fence becomes bigger than that part of our brain that can say, they're there. Mm -hmm. We've got it under control. We don't need you. It's as though I was reading through your reunion between the part of your brain that was saying mayday, mayday, SOS, and the part of your brain that was saying, it's not that we need that fence. And it's like, you even use the metaphor of the boat. It's not that the boat was gonna sink. It's that we needed a different boat. You became able to develop that relationship again between the parts of you that could assess things accurately and the parts of you that could honor the old story. I think it's um, I think it's a little bit like you know Russian dolls where they have like one doll inside another doll inside another doll. A matryoshka. Matryoshka is that what it's called? Okay, thank you. Mm -hmm. um, uh, I I feel like if you know if you had a Russian doll and you had like five dolls on top of the other and you took all the outer dolls away and you had the small little vulnerable doll, that's what I think my childhood was like. I was I was like pure unadulterated, exposed id, right? Just exposed to the world. And while I had physical shelter and I had a loving family that wanted to protect me and my siblings from the conflict, we were living in a state of emergency. And I don't, you know, it didn't have to be publicly declared for it to be metaphysically a state of emergency. And so, you know, barely keeping body and soul together was an achievement. I feel like because of 
not being into sports, which creates a, a kind of a community network for a lot of boys, particularly. Uh, but being more into movies, which came because my mother's a theater teacher and uh, she taught me about theater, but it was cheaper to go to the movies as a child than it was to go to live theater. Uh, creating an imaginary life that was that was resourced by cinema, uh, colliding with this sense of, oh, there's something very different inside me that I can't talk about to other people. I didn't I didn't meet an openly gay person until I was 23 years old didn't have the internet to to find sources of information and you know growing up in a, in a conservative religious culture find that there were theological positions that were totally affirming of who I was nobody mm -hmm. said to me you're fine you're good there's nothing wrong with you and followed through on that by showing me that they believed it sometimes people right. would say there's nothing wrong with you but their actions betrayed that they didn't really believe there's what what they would what they would say is there, there's nothing wrong with you but what they would do is then try to change me mm -hmm. um you couldn't trust it. that's that's right and again these are sincere good people who i believe had been born into the shadow just as much as i've been born into the shadow of being targeted by homophobia they had been born into the shadow of being stewards of homophobia Oof. And and I think that a lot of people in the 70s, 80s, and 90s uh, in, in the kind of moderate evangelical world kind of titrated the dose of homophobia. Mm. And so they were less homophobic than their forebears had been. And, you know, these things evolve over time. It doesn't excuse it. It doesn't excuse it. But there's there's no point blaming people for things they're unconscious of. You know, once you become conscious of it, right. then we can start taking responsibility. Uh, Absolutely. And and I suppose that does actually push me to say the principle should be: I want to be conscious of the fact that there are things I'm unconscious of, and so that means I should be careful what I say, how I say it, and what the impact is, even if I'm not sure of what that looks like. So, but that it takes a it takes a lot of growth for 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 that to happen in a society like ours. So I felt like I was the Russian doll, the small, the exposed Russian doll. I have an amygdala like anybody else, and the amygdala is a gift because it's what stops us walking too close to the edge of a cliff or walking out in front of a truck. That's what the amygdala is for, to give us necessary, useful fear. And I'm not even sure the word fear is appropriate. I would call it respect for reality. If you mm -hmm. walk out in front of a truck, then you're not respecting reality. If you if you walk too close to the edge of a cliff, you're not respecting reality. The problem is we live in a society where we are being bombarded with information that our brains haven't evolved quickly enough to be able to make sense of. The amygdala does not know if the flashing red stripe across the bottom of the screen on your 24-7 news channel is propaganda, conspiracy, factual, but being told in a way that's damaging, factual but being told in a way that's thoughtful or wisdom the amygdala mm -hmm. doesn't know that Only, it's not discerning no it can't and so we actually yeah. need to learn to get conscious yes. of how our brains work so this is why there's no judgment or blame if your amygdala keeps getting triggered by the red flashing stripe and the way we tell oppositional stories all the time in this culture it's going to take a while for you to learn practices that will get to the point where, where you can be aware that, that you're being triggered and that you can put a story between the trigger and the rest of you.
I love that. I, on page 114, you say, the very moment that the limits of our knowledge are so rapidly expanding, it's also difficult to discern what is true. Mm. It's time mm -hmm. to wake up. This waking up idea is working with our fear, mm -hmm. not allowing our fears and our stories to take over, to drive us. Mm -hmm. The seven common mm. fears that you have distilled in your consciousness raising mm. discernment, being alone, having done something that can't be fixed, having a meaningful life, the fear of not having a meaningful life, the fear of not having enough, the fear of being broken forever, feeling broken forever, fear of the world, which I, I love. I thought that, that could have been the title of the book, <laughs> the fear of the world um, and fear of death, fear of death. Um, the Tilly's Burned Roundabout, you're 12 years old. Why don't you set the scene? I went out for a, a bike ride with my dad. Um, driving literally i'm looking out a window at the moment and i would have had to go down the road that i'm looking at right now 34 years ago and the tillysburn roundabout people in the u.s typically haven't seen roundabouts because you don't really use them but it's a it's a big interchange of several different large roads and there's an underpass uh, for cyclists and pedestrians to go under so that they're safer there uh, it has a, i think at least four entrances in the underpass and i uh dad sort of zoomed ahead of me i was going a bit slower and um i think he was sort of trying to teach me to ride my bike faster because i was very timid uh on the bike and as i as i kind of uh you know zoomed down into the underpass myself when i got into it he was nowhere to be seen i, I couldn't see what exit he had taken and there was um kind of you know undergrowth and some you know, broken bottles and some debris down there. And I was completely lost. I might as well have been on another planet. I just love how you write page 85. You say you froze. Yeah. This is what so struck me. I literally was reading this and I had tears in my Ooh. eyes. You wrote all the guilt for things I'd done wrong or left undone seemed to surge through my body. I felt that I was nothing. I couldn't even find my way out of a roundabout. It was cold. I started to cry and I bolded this. This is what it feels like to be alone. I'm not lonely when I don't know what exit to take on the roundabout. I'm lonely when I am overcome by the fear that there will be no one on the other side to receive me. No one who knows me. Oh, gosh. <laughs> oh, it's it's like you're saying it's not the loneliness, but the impact. It's not the event, but how it was interpreted. But say more about that. No one who knows me. Yeah, well, I think it's like we, you, you can get into moments where you feel so vulnerable that the whole kitchen sink worth of broken feelings just falls on your head at the same time. And um, and especially if you have not learned the process of the joy of asking for help and being given help and not shamed for it. And that's not to say that my parents had never given me help. That's not the point. You know, when you're 12 years old, you can actually have all the love in the world around you, but you can get triggered at any moment into a sense of, of isolation and having no net to catch you. Um, 
And also when you haven't, when you, when you are the exposed Russian doll and you haven't learned that there are other layers that you can build around yourself. And I want to be careful about that metaphor because I'm not talking about defense mechanisms. I'm not talking mm. about going numb and I'm not talking about disguises. What I'm talking about is the other parts of your being that haven't fully come into being yet when you're in your formative years. The parts that can say, hey, you know, if it's raining hard, we should put a raincoat on before we go outside. Or <laughs> here's an umbrella. You don't need to go and stand out there in the elements unless you're choosing in a life-giving way to stand in the rain. Or um, if you're going into this situation, the inner sovereignty, to use a, a, a Jungian analogy, might serve you really well here. Or when you're preparing a party, the inner magician might serve you here. Or when you're going to be with a friend or a loved one and just be together, the inner lover is going to serve you here. And when somebody needs protected, and maybe that's you who needs protected, the inner warrior is what's going to serve you. But you don't know these things when you're 12. And frankly, yeah. if all you're exposed to is mainstream culture in our society, you don't know those things when you're 46 or 96 either. These things right. don't happen with, in my experience, they don't happen without an intervention. Now, the intervention can, can sometimes it happens just because you read the right, the right book or you see the right movie and it opens up a door. But more often than not, it comes from a wisdom figure who speaks it into your life. And which is why the, you know, of the two practices that I most strongly advocate in this book, one of them is an inner practice that's really just about breathing more slowly. And the other is about forming circles that we call porch circles of between three and eight or 12 people who try to listen to each other and speak into each other's lives from a place of wisdom. Um, because most of us don't have that, or most of us don't have that in an organized way. Those are the places where we can have mirrored to ourselves the truth that even in the bowels of the Tillysburn roundabout, I wasn't alone even then, because I had with me, me. I was right. with me in that moment and i the i that uh, i'm speaking from right now includes all the lovers and wisdom figures who've ever spoken into my mind who i've internalized part of the challenge is most of us are internalizing other shadowy voices too and so it takes a bit of work to disentangle the voices that mean us harm or the voices that haven't tuned into what's best for us over time. And it's one of the reasons why the answer to the fear of being alone is not go out and meet more people. It's actually try to become your own best friend because yes. two things will happen. And first of all, you'll never be alone if you become your own best friend. And secondly, um, there's, it's it's a magnificent self-fulfilling prophecy because the people who are their own best friends are usually the people who have the most friends because everybody wants to hang out with the person who authentically loves themselves. And you end up with another problem, which is you don't have enough time to see all the people who want to see you. 
uh, I just love that. You know, when you talk about the Matrioska doll, yeah. it's interesting. I, I don't think of defense mechanisms. I, I, I think of kind of a swirl of all the versions of ourselves yeah, as yeah. we're growing. Mm -hmm. But I also think of the ways in which the stories that we absorb, the the states and anxieties and legacies of stories that mm -hmm. we imbibe from our families, mm -hmm. our generational traumas. I come from parents who grew up in the Second World mm -hmm. War. My mother at 12 remembers sitting in the basement, mm -hmm. crouched next to her mother when the sirens were mm -hmm. going. And so there's some of that that comes into the birthing of me, yeah. the birthing of all those versions of myself. And so when you talk about the Matrioska doll and the enclosure of it, it's this idea of reintegrating all of our parts. Mm -hmm. This befriending you're talking about is really a kind of integration, isn't it? And the most, yes, yes is the simple answer to that. And the most astonishing thing is that everything good that has ever happened in you is still in you. Even if the external circumstances have changed, I learned this in a dream. And I don't mean this in a, in a, in a woo-woo way. I mean, literally, I had two dreams uh, that, that taught me this. One was an absolutely horrifying dream that there's no need to go into the detail, but it was just a terrifying nightmare. I woke up screaming. And Brian had his hand on my back because he had heard me scream and he was waking me up. And I woke up with my heart pounding and um, I could see the images in the nightmare as I, as I opened my eyes. And uh, Brian said to me, you're okay, you're okay, you have what you need. And then he rolled over and went straight back to sleep and has no memory of this, right? Um, and, and I had done enough kind of therapy and spiritual practice to realize I should just sit and start to breathe slowly to regulate my breathing and let my mind calm down. And the next day I realized that the, the dream in which there was a, there was a, a, a shadowy figure who was trying to catch and kill me. Um, and uh, in, in ever increasingly horrible ways. <laughs> um, we all have, we all those, have those dreams. dreams. And, uh, I realized what it was, was that this was the spirit of nihilism or despair that was trying to was trying to catch me. And in the dream, just at the point where they were about to catch me, I turned around to confront them, and that's when I woke up. Um, and then I had a second dream, and this dream is is uh, far more far more pleasant. In the dream, I was about eleven years old, and I was walking around near where I live right now, listening to my little Walkman. Um, I didn't have an actual Sony Walkman. I had a cheap knockoff Walkman. Nobody I knew could afford an actual Sony Walkman in 1986. <laughs> and I was listening to Huey Lewis in the News singing The Power of Love, which I had uh, first heard in Back to the Future, which was a film that had rocked my world. And that was the dream. Simply, I'm listening to this song in the dream. And I wake up from the dream back in North Carolina and I have all these warm feelings in my body, just the same as we've all had horrible dreams that we're really glad to wake up from. We've all had lovely dreams that we're kind of disappointed when we wake up 
You know, that feeling, <laughs> oh, I'm, oh. That, that wasn't real? Yeah. Oh, I'd like to go back. This time it was different because when I woke up from this dream, I woke up with the feeling of that song in my body and I realized, and maybe everybody already knows this and I'm just slow to the party. I'm not so sure though. I realized <laughs> that the feeling in my body now in my 40s triggered by the dream and the memory of this song is happening in exactly the same body that it was happening to in 1986 when I felt joy, when I felt freedom, when I felt innocent, when I'd never seen a mortgage statement or worried about what I was going to do for a living, where I hadn't fallen out of love or had painful breakups um, or felt terrible guilt yet. I hadn't been in the Tillysburn roundabout. It was about a year away from that happening. I realized this same body contains that Russian doll, that 11-year-old me. And there's mm. something exquisite, wonderful, innocent, pure about that 11-year-old me. And he still lives inside me. So the reason I name that is you talk about integrating the selves. I talk about putting on the raincoat when it's raining or bringing the sovereign part whenever it's time to be a decider. I suspect these things are all sort of available to us in the way that an acorn contains the whole of the tree. Mm. But until we've been initiated into them through circumstances or directly through conscious initiation by people who know what they're doing, uh, we may never get beyond the amygdala ru ruling our lives. Now, I don't, my friend Nance says, this is not a place that she lives, but she likes to visit it often. So I don't live here all the time, but I do like to visit. And increasingly, I like to visit as often as I can the place where myselves are integrating themselves. I love that you say in the book, one of the first tasks we face in fear is to decide what truth the fear is trying to tell us about our cosmic selves and our small world. <laughs> and then we can decide what to do with it. It's that sense that really befriending fear leads us back to our own sense of agency and wonder. Well, underneath uh, anger, uh, Buddhist teachers tell us is fear. And underneath fear is what we love. Yeah. Right? Uh, you know, in the most mundane way, I'm afraid of something bad happening to my loved ones. Well, the reason I'm afraid of it is because I love them. <laughs> and I either love them in a deeply enlightened way, which is that I care purely about their needs. I don't think there's anybody who does that. <laughs> uh, or I love them in a selfish way, which is that I would miss them if they were gone. Okay. Mm. And so if it's as simple as that, the things that we fear have a message underneath. Now, the message could be as simple as Gareth, stop watching those scary movies. You know, or Gareth. <laughs> like you like like you say, stop believing your own propaganda. That's right. Or, you know, if you're obsessively scrolling through news websites that continually leave you feeling worse and taking no action to make the mm -hmm. world better, perhaps the fear that you feel about this is a signal. Look for other sources of information that include wisdom as well as facts. 
Let's talk about when you talk about fear of the world, mm. and we've we've brought up the internet a few times. We brought up news, breaking news a few times. Let's talk about that. I, there's a very poignant and powerful statement you make in the book: the current global crisis is a crisis of storytelling. And having spent many years as a journalist and a long background in television, I remember the first time I walked in a newsroom back in 1987, and the news director said to me, "You know, if it bleeds, it leads." And I, I thought, what the, I was horrified. Um, my first question was why? Mm -hmm. But we've been so exposed to the fear mongering. It's not insidious anymore. It's explicit. And so what is the impact of that constant explicit? You say that if you want to create chaos, teach people to be afraid. Well, everybody's afraid <laughs> and we have chaos. So I, I, I am learning these days that I like to draw a distinction between headline news and different kinds of journalism, because I think there's mm. many honorable journalists out there who are trying to get the heart of what's really going on. And then yes. there's people who are looking for how do we tell stories in a way that isn't just factual, but contextual and not yes. disempowering, but empowering, you know. And embodied. Say more about that embodied the types of stories that don't blow people out of their, as my friend Dan Siegel calls it, their window of tolerance, or that, that, don't, that don't push people into dissociative states, but that keep us in our bodies. And I love that you talk about the spiritual discipline of healthy storytelling. I think it's an ethical responsibility. Agreed. I have loads of journalists, friends, I still do stuff in the, in the media, but let's get real about this. A lot of the journalism world is full of people who are dissociating, that they've actually been, um, the structure of the workday is set up to cause people to be confronted by things that would cause anybody to dissociate. And it's the exposure to that trauma, you know, a trauma informed journalism, um, is a very different agenda, a very different mission. And so just to take headline news, right, which used to be once a day with somebody presenting it who there was at least some sense of them having a particular ethical standard about the public good. But, you know, I'm skeptical about that. I don't I don't want to look at the past through rose colored glasses. I think even Walter, Walter Cronkite had an agenda. Right. Mm -hmm. And And, you know. He's not around anymore, but folks like him, I'd want to interrogate that, that agenda. I mean, one agenda being, you know, pretty much everything that the U.S. does is right. That, that, that would be part of the agenda that a lot of mainstream news sources would, would have had in the past. So let's, let's leave aside the notion that the news was healthier in the past. I think we could certainly say that a headline news agenda that tells us only a summary of the worst things that have happened in the most difficult places in the last 15 minutes or 24 hours without providing context for them, that that's not psychologically healthy. It's not, no. and, it, and I don't think it's ethical either. If we believe that truth is something to be uh, striven for, even if we know that we can't, we're not going to apprehend complete truth. Of course, we're not going to apprehend uh, com complete truth, but telling stories about violence without talking about what the trends regarding violence are, why violence happens, what led up to the violence, 
on what happens afterwards, how other places have resolved or attempted to resolve similar kinds of problems. That would be a more ethical and psychologically whole way of telling the news. And don't, don't get into fights on Facebook. Don't start fights on Facebook. I've thought for a while that there need to be there needs to be like a private social media and a public social media. So the private one would be where you and I and anybody who we found who's like minded could get our angst out and rant a bit and just express the negative energy that we sometimes need to express, but only other people that we trust would ever see it. And then it would be like deleted after 30 minutes. And then for the public social media, we would publish our highest visions of the truth as we understand it. Um, That's so generative. Yeah. I love that. And, and I want my, I want people who are on the other side of the political equation to do the same. I want to hear from them, from their highest selves. I want to be invited into a conversation from the highest selves of people who might oppose me uh, politically. We, you know, we all have bad days and we all have things we've got to get off our chests, but that's what therapy and having a good walk is for. Okay. <laughs> the problem with social media is that we are publishing the stuff that really should be sweated out. Most of us also don't know that we are capable of far more in an enlightened sense, no matter who we are, no matter where we've come from, no matter what our position on particular political policies happens to be, every one of us has, ex has either experienced great love or the lack of great love, which is also a way of experiencing great love because you know how deeply you're missing it. And every one of us has observed a simple act of kindness changing everything. We don't have to wait for somebody else to show up and do that to us. If we're just sitting around waiting for a Gandhi figure or a Harriet Tubman figure or a Bayard Rustin figure to come along and be kind to us, well, maybe that's going to happen. We don't have any control over it. What we have control over is what's my next interaction with another person going to be like? And, right. and they, they almost certainly need us to tell them a more truthful story that is kindness and hope as part of the facts that it's sharing. What you're describing leads us back to our creativity, hmm. this idea that we all have the capacity to tell a different story, a more truthful story, and that creativity being that birthright that sort of mm. portal to joy and to shared, a shared sense of getting underneath our shared fears to find that shared longing for love, to get to that underneath place. I just want to touch on creativity and fear, Gareth. I love that you talk about how we vastly underestimate our capacity to have an impact oh, yeah. on co-creating a better world. And it strikes me that fear has a complex relationship with creativity. And I think you touch on it a bit when you talk about in the shadow of fear and death, you say in the book, there was little room for human ingenuity, mm. for the spark of cooperation, for psychologically and spiritually integrated lament for the wound, mm. for courageous creativity toward the common good. Mm. <sighs> so good. <laughs> oh. 
So the relationship between fear and creativity, it's like there's something paradoxical there, something yeah. mutually exclusive and something mutually inclusive. Yeah. So, you know, we know that there are three naturally occurring evolutionary responses to fear, fight, flight, or freeze. There's a fourth way, and the fourth way is learn and share a different story. Now, if the threat is coming at you urgently, get out of the way if you can. Mm -hmm. If you can't, love yourself as best as you can in the face of that Absolutely. threat. If after the threat has passed, you're still alive. And I don't, I mean, I'm laughing, but it's, it's from a context of growing up in a society where so much was so awful for so long that we had to learn to laugh to kind of let, let off steam, but it's trying to find new security through a different story. And the different story might be something like, maybe I'm not 100% responsible for meeting all my needs. Maybe I'm not. Maybe I can be forgiven for my mistakes. Maybe other people would be just as gracious to me as I would want to be to them. Uh, maybe there's wisdom out there that already knows the answer to my problems. Maybe I'd, I'd, I'd remember hitting a point, a point of real despair a few years ago over an issue that I was trying to change in my life. And I said, I've tried everything and none of it works. Right. <laughs> and I'd sitting with it for a while and, and, and then realizing actually, First of all, in order to have tried everything, I would have to know everything. Mm. And even I am willing to admit that I don't know everything. <laughs> and then I thought the things that I had tried, I hadn't really tried them. So that story that I was telling just wasn't factual at all. And it enabled me to shift outside. Oh, there's, I could get creative here. The relationship mm. between fear and creativity was that fear took me to a dead end. And I had to find, I had to make a new way. I had to make a new road by stepping out into it. And of course, lots of us think when we do things like this, well, we're the first. I'm really pioneering something. And then if it grows and becomes mature, you realize there have been millions and maybe hundreds of millions of people who've been down the same path already. But part of, I think, part of authenticating the path is the sense that you're pioneering something, something new is happening. The joy of it is that you discover there's other people on that same path too, who maybe use different words to describe the path, but you know it when you see it. I'm curious to know when you found yourself uh, in Ireland with John O'Donohue and you talk about the story Shelter, mm -hmm. was that a paradigm shifting moment? Hmm. I think the paradigm that shifted for me with John was John was was one of a number of people who I really looked up to who showed me so much affirmation that I began to believe in myself. Mm. You know, um, and I kind of felt, wow, if this person who I, I have so much admiration for, if he thinks I've got something to offer, that's and he was very gracious and and um, a real mentor and a real friend to me around that and you know if people read the book i tell the story at length about walking up a mountain with a group of pilgrims that he was leading on a very rainy cold day we just kept pushing through the rain and pushing through the rain until we got to the top of the mountain where there's a stone shelter that we all squeezed into to shelter from the rain and john said to me gareth why don't you tell that story that you were telling me the other night it will warm us and it's just a funny little story you know it wasn't the most profound story in the world but um i think 
for me, somebody I respected saying, giving the platform to me, trusting me with the platform. I think all of us need mentors in our lives who do that for us, who will open a little door, who will allow us the opportunity to get it wrong or to get it less mm -hmm. than perfect. We can't ever learn without being given the opportunity to, to, to make mistakes or to, to receive feedback about how to do it better the next time. But the image of the, of the stone shelter is a, is became a new paradigm for me. And that is we were underneath this shelter. So we didn't feel the rain anymore, but it didn't mean that the rain had stopped. It just meant that the rain was irrelevant to where we were because we'd built this shelter around ourselves. And to go back to the Russian doll, it's not about numb or a suit of armor that protects you from ever feeling anything. In fact, the front of the shelter was totally open to the elements. And that's probably how we live most of our lives. You know, I, I used to think that monks had it easy. You know, it's, it's easy for you if, you if you live in this beautiful place, it's really quiet. We get all your meals prepared for you and you don't have to worry about the tax authorities and uh, you get to live with all your friends. And, and gosh, how, how, how ridiculously prejudiced was I around that when I began to, to read some of the, the contemplatives uh, who lived in monastic life, Julian of Norwich. Um, and Thomas Merton being the two that, that stand out to me the most and to, to realize that, you know, Thomas Merton, while he's living in the monastery, he's also getting death threats from people who want to kill him because of his opposition to the Vietnam War. In fact, I, I need to reverse that, who want to kill him because of their prejudice regarding his opposition to the Vietnam War. Um, that's a new story I've been learning lately. I used to say there's people who look down on me because I'm married to a man. That's not true. They look down on me because they're homophobic. And there, there are people of color who are discriminated Facts. against, not because they're people of color, but because there are people who have been possessed by racism. And there were people who wanted mm. to kill Thomas Merton because of their prejudice regarding his opposition to the Vietnam War. And they were even, my understanding is threatening to come to the monastery and kill him. And so that was a wake up call for me to realize, nah, my notion that Thomas Merton had it easy. The stories we tell ourselves. The reason I bring it up in this context is we can have a shelter that's sheltered at the back and the sides and the roof, but the front of the shelter will always be open. If we yeah. want to actually live an experienced life, we have to be prepared. To, I mean, that is risk, right? It's risk. Mm. And there's an inevitability to the risk too, because none of this tangible stuff is permanent. What's permanent is the most whole version of the Russian doll inside the other layers. And there will come a time where I think at our death, what happens is that that, that Russian doll in its most whole form is set free, whether our egos die, whether, whether we have conscious memory of it. To me, it's, it's not really even an interesting question because it just seems so unfathomably beyond my control that if love is real, if love is what animates the universe, then it's going to be incomprehensibly better than I could possibly imagine, whether I remember myself or not. Right. Mm. And there's a lot of, there are a lot of wisdom traditions that say that you can access the beginning of this right now. You don't have to wait until you die to be happy. Mm. You don't have to wait uh, until you're surrounded by visible sources of support in order to be safe. 
And being safe is not the same as feeling comfortable. And being safe in the deepest sense does not necessarily mean that something really difficult is, isn't going to happen. Feeling safe is not the same as being safe. You can be safe and not feel it at all. Unpack that. That is so powerful. The emphasis might better be on the word I rather than on the word safe. Who is the I, right? And I think the I is this thing that I call the core beneath the core. Most of us aren't in touch with the deepest, with the Russian doll, the deepest, the healthiest, most whole version of the Russian doll. I've been reading lately, I, I don't know if you're familiar with the concept of intuitive eating. Um, and, and I've been reading that, you know, it's, it's about, you know, challenging diet culture and helping people uh, for whom the number on the scale might be a number that gets shamed in the wider culture. I'm one of those people. The number on the scale is not the right number as far as the diet magazines and books are concerned. Mm-hmm. Intuitive eating's theory uh, helps me get in touch with how wonderful I am, just as I am, and that if I want to change things about my body and my relationship with food, it should be about what's most whole for me rather than what's it going to change about the number on the scale and what other people think I look like or what I think other people think I look like. I was reading in it the other day that one of the ways to begin to become an intuitive eater, and there's a deep connection with this question of I and safety, uh, is Mm -hmm. to learn to sense your own heartbeat without touching your pulse right that that if you can develop a practice and it starts by actually feeling your pulse and and timing it for a minute and then feeling your pulse without the timer and then just feeling your pulse without touching your wrist it helps you get more deeply into you it helps me get more deeply into me into the deeper russian doll um that i that i is untouchable by anybody else except me. One of the unintended, or I don't know if it's unintended, one of the unexpected consequences of childhood trauma that can be immensely liberating to adults whenever they do trauma healing work is the discovery that one of the things that happens in trauma is that you shut down this part of yourself and actually, you, you, and you may spend decades feeling numb or dissociating until you find the right medicine. But if you find the right medicine and it works, you spend enough time in it, which happened for me, you might discover there's actually a deeper part of you that has been preserved from harm. That actually your mind shut down this part so that it would not be destroyed. The rest of you might feel like you were a ravaged battlefield. And if you're listening to this and that's you, you have my love and my respect and my admiration for what you've done to get this far. And truly there is hope. The big fear that a lot of traumatized people have and that I had was that I'm either going to, when I find it, I'm going to find that there's either nothing there at my core or what's there has been shot to hell or is evil. 
that part that you say, the fear of being broken. That's forever. right. That, that, I, that, that I will find that at the core of me is hell. Mm-hmm. And actually, at the core of me is this protected part that only I can touch. And I was so hurt or fragile or confused or hadn't been initiated yet that my neurobiology, and I would say God who designed that, whether God has a personality or is just the animating force of the universe, actually did me a favor by locking this part up until such a time as I was ready to touch it again. Now, again, I don't live there. I like to visit this part. Um, And that's the I that is safe, even if the self that I present to the world or the particular feelings that I'm having at any, any given moment maybe don't feel safe. We talked before about the underneath of fear is love and that we're all just trying to figure out how to love. As you write in the book, we talk about that core. Mm. It's like that's the part as I'm reading through the book where there's such a profound poignancy mm. to the ways in which understanding that those things we fear mm right? Those stories that we fear could have been true, might have been Mm -hmm. true. And having that courage, that creative courage to go within, to eventually find that core, the I, to understand all of the ways in which we have been impacted by events Mm -hmm. that we can put under the category of trauma. Mm -hmm. And to realize that we are not the eyesed part, the traumatized Mm -hmm. That's, that doesn't become my identity, but is the experience that I might have had. But the love piece is realizing that my body, my brain, my psyche, in all of its miraculous forms, protected somehow, created a buffer, n- knew how to titrate. Well, I can't tell you too much of that story right now. I can't. You can't feel too much of that. There's that I, you, that piece of reintegrating for me feels like such a gesture of love from within. So I come back to the beginning where you say fear, overcoming fear, overcoming the worst pieces of what we feel that fear is, is an inside job. But we don't do it alone. You talk about having mentors and building community. Yeah. And like what really kind of, you know, there can be these moments of transcendence where the deeper self, let's say the, the, the Russian doll inside you and the Russian doll inside me, they start to talk to each other. Right. Ah, You know, most of us are having like we're having different layers of conversation or like part of what creates conflict is when two people talk to each other on different levels at the same time, rather than, okay, what are what level are we talking at here? And through practice and through being in connection community together where people know how to do this. Being in a room with people who are talking to each other from the deeper self, actually not much gets said because it's so fantastic, not very many words need to be used. And mm. um, I think all, all I'm trying to do with this book is to tell people, it isn't true that you've tried everything and that none of it works. It's that what you've been invited to try either wasn't everything or doesn't work or you weren't helped to try it well enough. There are things that work, and that's when we bring ourselves into alignment with fear or respect for reality. 
We learn to breathe more slowly and all kinds of other practices that help us get more in touch with our true heartbeat. And we form or join communities of other people on a similar path. And we check in with each other periodically and ask, what's good? What's tough? How do you feel called to serve the common good? And how can we help each other? All it requires is for somebody to go first. And if that's you, or if that's someone listening, there's nothing to hold you back other than your own story. Just ask the person you feel most comfortable talking to about this kind of stuff to meet for a cup of coffee and ask each other those four questions. What's good? What's not so good? How do you feel called to serve the common good? And how can we help each other? And over time, add somebody else to that and add somebody else and add somebody else. When you get to eight or 12 people, it's probably too many. And then just encourage some other people to do it too. And give or take a few thousand years, we will have healed the world. <laughs> Gareth, I, I would love you to read this small excerpt from your book, page 178 when you say, even though you have memories of pain, that is real. And even though there may even have been monsters that behaved monstrously, these truths remain. Can you read until the end yeah, of that paragraph sure. for us? Thank you. And even though you have memories of pain that is real, and even though there may even have been monsters that behaved monstrously, these truths remain. There is a part of you that the monsters could not touch. You are bigger than the monsters now. Monsters are also just people. Your pain deserves attention. Your wounds deserve to be bound. And yourself deserves to be set free from a prison of despair and terror. There is a seed of healing even within the wound. Though you may know well the unwelcome racing of a damaged heart, you are not as weak as you think. You've already been heroic just to get here, just to get to now. There may come a time when your wound is offered as a source of transformation, even in the place where you were first harmed to others who know the same wound, and even to those who have caused these wounds. But that may not be a task for today. Today may just be for you. But when it's time, don't withhold your gift. Gareth Higgins' book is How Not to Be Afraid. If you'd like to connect with Gareth and find out more about his work, check out The Porch Magazine, explore movies and meaning, or go to garethhiggins.net. Links in the episode notes. The Foreseeable Now is hosted and produced by me, Lou Hanessian. Co-production and original music by Kano Sound. Please subscribe and share, stay in touch, and follow us at The Foreseeable Now podcast on IG.